What's the worst case of demonic possession that you've experienced? There was a case, it's, um, it was going on for 10 years before I got involved. It was, it was physically really rough. Um, and I've seen other cases like this where, you know, obviously the person's consenting before the prayer, you know, and wanting to be restrained if they attack other people or try to hurt themselves. It's not that anybody's um, abusing anybody, but when while they're attacking other people, five men not being able to keep them under control or safe, have seen things, them gesture towards something on the wall and have it rip out of the wall and fly towards them and then grab it out of the air. Welcome to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. Adam Bly is a Catholic Church decreed expert in religious demonology and exorcism for the Diocese of Pittsburgh in the United States. He is a layman, the author of The Exorcism Files, published by Sophia Institute Press. Adam was a guest on Dig Life Deep last year. We had such a massive reaction, I asked Adam back to ask him more questions. On this episode, he'll talk in further detail about demonic possession, ritual satanic abuse, the presence of diabolical evil in the world, devil worship, miracles, and much more. Before we hear from Adam Bly, we'll switch gears for a moment, something much more different. Our weekly and very popular Future Shock 2.0 segment on trends, developments and studies on the workforce and labour markets with Ira Wolf. Here's Ira talking on all these disruptions we keep hearing about lately. More, it seems, these days from travel delays and the weather to terrible terror attacks and economic disruptions and how all that fits into the evolution of remote working thanks again john for having me back on future shock 2.0 so just a few weeks ago we had storm elliot and you know some people talked about that as bombogenesis and and we seem to be having more of those as a routine but beyond talking about the climate we're, we're having more and more disruptions whether it's the weather whether it's you know terror whether it's um the economy there's just one disruption after the other. And it, they, they just seem to reinforce why remote work or hybrid work is going to be here to stay. So if you think about the storm, you think about the ma- the millions of people whose travel was disrupted. You talk about or whose travel, what I was thinking of, I was seeing people on the news that were changing their flights. They were changing their travel, and so which meant they were leaving work earlier than they should, that they knew by Thursday and Friday they couldn't get out. So they were leaving Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. So very simple thing. So that disrupted work. Um, now, many of they could work remote. Maybe they did. Uh, schools closed, daycare closes, transportation, which I mentioned, closes. But at one time, you and I are old enough to remember, uh, and you don't have to even be that old. You probably can go back 10 years and hear about on the news, if there was a storm, this mass, that massive coming, it was the storm of the century. And you'd see breaking news continually about the storm of the century. I have not heard one statement that this was a storm of the century, although it's 
going to be a record storm from coast to coast. It's not even in one isolated area. So we've had a lot of wacky and weird things happening, but now it seems that these disruptions are part of our normal, and yet employers still seem to be pushing back and want to get back to the old normal where everybody commuted to the office. I don't know where this is going. Uh, this is, but I again, I, I think disruptions like this are are just one more example of why remote work or at least hybrid work is going to be here to stay. So maybe here's my suggestion. It's time for employers and communities to focus more time and resources and budget on how to make the remote work grid more reliable, starting with how managers manage remote teams, how employees learn how to manage that, help people get set up both with their hardware, the software, and the ability to work remote because working from home or working out of the office uh, is obviously going to be something that's here to stay or companies are just going to shut their doors on the days that it snows. Great point. Remote work is not disappearing and many employers are seeing the huge upside and benefits even as many of them are drawing in workers back to the office. Thank you, Ira Wolf. Ira is a workforce trends expert, author, TEDx talker, public speaker, and host of the top-rated Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization podcast. Speaking of podcasts, tune in to the Odeon Capital Conversations podcast for new episodes every week on Money and Markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group and yours truly. On the latest episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, we talk about the US social security system, which is inching closer to insolvency, and we look at how it can be fixed. We talk about the debt ceiling in the United States, the case against free trade, and we look at U.S. multinationals creating more jobs back on United States soil, and how outsourcing has devastated some American cities. That's Odeon Capital Conversations on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. It is now a top-rated podcast in the United States, Canada, Europe, and Asia. Stay with us because my interview with Adam Ply, he's an exorcism expert for the Diocese of Pittsburgh. It's coming up in a wee moment. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. We keep digging for the secrets and stories of uncommon and everyday things and interesting people. No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> it's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. 
My guest is Adam Bly, an exorcism expert and demonologist, author of The Exorcism Files, published by Sophia Institute Press. And you can watch and listen to this podcast up on our YouTube channel, Dig Life Deep. I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Adam, welcome back to my show. Thank you, John. It's good to be here. I know when you're introduced on stage in public forums, on TV, media interviews, everybody is intrigued. You grab their attention right away. You know, you're in an area that is just fascinating. Um, and I had you on my show uh, some time ago, and there was a very interesting reaction, a very a huge reaction to a lot of the things we spoke about. You're a church decreed expert in religious demonology and exorcism for the Diocese of Pittsburgh. You've served as an expert in these areas in training priests, deacons, and laity in many other dioceses. And uh, you are an auxiliary member of the International Association of Exorcists, which is a Vatican-recognized private association of the Christian faithful based in Rome. Over 15 years of working and training in the exorcism ministry, you have witnessed or experienced a number of miracles, some of which you were appointed to investigate by the Catholic Church. So welcome again. Nancy Pelosi has been in the news lately. Um, late last year, somebody invaded the family home in San Francisco, and she wasn't there at the time, but it was her husband. There was a guy wielding some kind of a, an axe or whatever, but it, it turned out okay in the end, but it was a dreadful situation and quite frightening. I mean, I guess the question arises of how the intruder got into the home in the first instance. Um, in the past week or so, there have been reports out there of priests being called to the Pelosi home in San Francisco to bless it and perform an exorcism. And this is in, in the words of Nancy Pelosi's daughter in an interview with the New York Times. And the daughter was quoted as saying that the whole incident weighed heavily on Nancy um, because the intruder who was trying to do harm there and was trying to do harm to her husband. Uh, the intended victim was Nancy Pelosi and some of what he was quoted uh, as saying his intention was to do quite a lot of harm to Nancy Pelosi, but she wasn't there at the time. What do you make of that report of an exorcism or at her home? What do you think was going on? Well, I think the first thing, John, that's important is to, to not let that kind of seem like a sensational thing. Um, it's not really that unusual. It's not like what people see in the movies. If people are associating that with the movie The Exorcist or the more recent films, that's that's a far cry from what doing an exorcism at a home is like. So the solemn exorcism that people see in the movies, which can be dramatic in the sense that, you know, they're they're beautiful, powerful prayers, and sometimes strange things happen at exorcisms, and those solemn exorcisms are for people. The rite that is used for a home is much, much shorter. Um, it's only about four pages, and depending on how you print it, maybe two pages long. Uh, it only involves one command to Satan to depart, and it's not, not, not assuming that Satan is present, but Satan in the sense of the demonic. Um, 
It was written by Pope Leo XIII in 1890, uh, originally to curb the activity of Freemasonry against the church. And then over time, it was generalized and then used in any location where demonic activity was suspected. So that's not to say that they suspected there's demonic activity in anybody's home that they would go do an exorcism at. Because, John, what's pretty common um, these days is when there's been a very serious sin or very serious kind of wound, like a murder or a suicide in a location, in addition to blessing that, we will fairly regularly do an exorcism out of, out of an abundance of caution, not because pots and pans are flying around the room or strange things are happening, but because there's been such a grievous sin that in an abundance of caution, you want to just wipe the slate clean. So I don't know you know, whether they, they did an exorcism of her home. I don't know who did it, if it was done. I'm just talking in general. That's that's kind of the motive, I would say, for, for most priests to, to propose that. Yeah, we may never know fully um, what happened there. It could be out of an abundance of caution. The Pelosi's are Catholics. She describes herself, or the media have described her as a devout Catholic. Of course, the reaction to, of some people to that, many Catholics, is, oh, gee, yeah, nice try. Uh, you're the one who supports um, a liberal abortion regime in America. Mm. Yeah, I I mean, I, I can't speak to her politics or judge her, her you know, her personal Catholic faith. Um, I think it'd be unfair to, given She's she's not a point of expertise for me in terms of following her. I know she's been involved in some of that, but I kind of leave that up to God and and her confessor. Last time I had you on my show, we didn't have enough time to um, get into this, but it was a f interesting point you raised. You were talking about demonic activity and the presence of demons in the world today, and then you went back in time to history to the early days of Christianity, when Christianity was getting its footing here on earth. The demons at that point in the early Christian church were being expelled rapidly, and we were creating this, or moving closer to some kind of a wonderful kingdom on earth. Um, now we're back to what preceded the uh, early days of Christianity. We've, in your words, we've more demons roaming the world and um i suppose the way you look at it destroying souls well oh, oh, okay we got to slow down there so what i was talking about was in the history of the church when christianity first was expanding and moving into uh what what christianity would call pagan cultures there was a lot of exorcism activity in the early centuries of that, or actually more decades. And then it would tend to settle down and there would be less exorcisms going on as more and more people were living lives obedient to God's laws. There was less inroads for the demons to cause possessions. And so it's not that there's more demons roaming the world today or destroying souls. So there's same number as roaming the world as from the beginning of time. There's no new ones being created. It's just whether they are have the kind of room to operate and the freedom to deceive and basically form relationships with people more readily when the when the culture becomes less Christian and stops passing on the cautionary rules of life that avoid spiritual problems and now 
our culture actually celebrates the things that lead to spiritual problems, many more people are getting into spiritual trouble. Um, and the final thing I just wanted to be to be clear on, it's not that they're destroying souls, because the soul they cannot touch. The soul is God's, and God makes that judgment when we die. So spirit, spiritual death is complete separation from God, which is something we choose. We have to choose that. We have to choose to deny God and continue to deny God until our last breath. And if we do that, we separate ourselves from God, and that leaves us damned. Um, but that destroying of the soul, so to speak, it's not that your soul can be destroyed while you're alive. There's always the chance for repentance. There's always the chance to come back to God while you still have breath in you. So the soul can never be destroyed. In fact, your soul is eternal, so it's never going to be destroyed, period. I just, I, I don't mean to be nitpicky, but those are actually really important nuances in, in those statements. No, I'm glad you're being nitpicky here, Adam, and it's a, a fair uh, clarification, and I do stand corrected because you did say freedom to roam in that interview we had, and I guess logically, you know, the idea of generating more and more demons probably doesn't make a ton of sense anyway. Um, so where are we at today? Where are we at today in terms of the demonic um demons and so on i know we spoke about it last time out but um how would you sum it up i mean we're just again we're reading about all these dreadful things that are happening in the world um you're tempted to always turn off the tv at night now it's so bad we had mass shootings in california i think there was another today um and then the war in ukraine and everything so there's something terrible going on that's making mankind do these things is it well, demonic activity is it the presence of something just really extraordinarily evil out there well human free will our our agency our ability to choose is never taken away completely so the demon doesn't uh outside of somebody that's fully possessed and even then the demon only takes over the body for limited periods of time here and there it's not all the time human beings that are doing the evil acts in the world by and large i'm sure you know there's the rare case of somebody that maybe is possessed out there doing bad things sure but the bulk by and large these are human beings making bad choices bad destructive choices like, for instance, and I say this with a little bit of experience, I, I worked in the Pennsylvania prison system for a total of about seven years working as a psychological services specialist. I've seen and worked with every type of criminal, every type of crime and human evil, uh, basically, that, that we have categories for. And out of all of those hundreds of guys that I worked with, there was two, one that I'm pretty sure was possessed, who was a serial killer. And another one who was on his deathbed, who did seem to be possessed, but didn't want any help. So, you know, based on that, my sense is, is that in the world, by and large, people are just making evil choices. The demon can't force a human to choose evil. He can only propose that they choose evil. God always allows you to make the choice. I think the greatest impact the demon is having is in the destruction of the family and the shattering of the family and of culture so that people are disconnected from the good 
wholesome messages and formation that we used to grow up with. You know, in our generation, you and I are probably, you know, probably both in our 50s. For us, when we were little, it would be just understood. You don't play with Ouija boards. Witchcraft is bad. You don't play around with spirits. All of that was baked into the culture. So I think that the biggest way the demon is indirectly encouraging evil is by shattering the family and removing the passing on of culture. And so now people, they get their spiritual formation and their, and their theology from their phone, from clips on the internet, as opposed to solid, complete formation in their spiritual life. So yes, the demon's affecting things, but ultimately we're accountable for our choices. And those people doing these bad things are accountable for their own free will choices. Uh, going back to your book on the exorcism files, um, you mention um, the martial arts, yoga, um, Reiki, the Ouija boards, gateways to the occult and the diabolical. I, I mean, it's been reported that they, they're, they're prevalent. A lot of people treat all of these, or not all, not everybody, as sort of forms of entertainment, but you think there's could be these could lead to some very um dangerous things right you're issuing a warning here yeah it's not that i think they could i know from experience so i know definitively that in a certain number of cases of people real flesh and blood people i've talked with and you know met with many times and, and we've prayed with that those systems have led to problems um so you know it's not like an armchair um conclusion that i'm coming to it's based on experience and then you know i can reflect on the theology behind that and the and the cautions behind that that are that are there biblically and see that it all lines up but the bottom line is these person these people come to us coming out of dabbling with these things in spiritual trouble that upon examination is not mental illness it's not a medical problem it's not just a misunderstanding you know there there's real signs of something going on that reason can't explain why do you include yoga in that some people look on that as a way to keep their mental and physical health intact mm -hmm. so it, it's a bit of a long story but but i'll try to sum it up so doing yoga the physical postures and and probably at least the breathing um though some people get into the meditation and the intoning the names of hindu gods but if you just take the physical you're taking one piece of if you imagine you know a, a pie chart and there's there's different parts of your spirit of your particular religious life so for the catholic you would say okay i go to mass and that's 25 percent of my spirit my, my religious life and i go to confession once in a while that's 10 percent. i got baptized that's really important maybe that's 33 percent um you know i participate in these sacraments i say some prayers i try to avoid mortal sin and you would build that up and you might say i say the rosary um and then what yoga is if you took that pie chart for hinduism which includes diet prayer meditation physical postures um even body decorations in the case of 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 the dust put on the face or sometimes the marking for the third eye etc cetera, etc cetera. and you took this whole religious lifestyle and you just extracted the physical postures brought them over here to the west and said isn't this nice and mildly mystical and makes you feel vaguely spiritual let's do this you're taking worship postures for hindu gods 
bringing them over out of context, and you're actually doing a fairly insulting cultural appropriation in the meantime, of which a number of Hindu leaders in India have complained that the Westerners are basically kind of, um, you know, it's almost insulting. It's an appropriation. Um, bringing that over. And yes, if you just go to a shopping center and go to a yoga studio and just do the physical things without ever thinking about any of the spiritual stuff, you're not trying to manipulate energy, you're not intoning the names of, of spirits, you're probably not going to get into big trouble. But the problem is, John, almost invariably, some new teacher comes in or there's a guest teacher this week and they start talking about meditation and project your energy and intone this name over and over. And then somebody comes in and talks about Kundalini and awakening the Kundalini spirit in your spine. And now let's make it stronger and get you to your spiritual awakening, which when the Kundalini awakening happens, they describe the effects are involuntary body jerks and movements and animal-like vocalizations the person can't control. And this is regarded as a good thing. And, you know, people can go and YouTube Kundalini dangers with a K. You'll, you'll figure out the spelling. And so the deeper you get into the pool, the more creepy it gets, to be honest. Um, I'm working on a case right now of somebody coming out of a very deep and global um, sect within Hinduism that's incredibly popular, over 10 million members worldwide. And the stuff that they're describing to us that are part of the practices are are pretty disturbing. And I'm not going to get into the details, um, but just you know, there's enough out there that's disturbing for the Westerner. If you just go look up Kundalini dangers or um, Kundalini awakening, you'll see what the deeper spiritual end of, of the yoga pool starts doing to people. And so, you know, yes, if it's just the shopping center and you're just, just standing on your head, okay, probably nothing terrible is going to happen, but almost inevitably it gets more and more spiritual. It moves into energy manipulation, and then it moves into uh, spirits in the body and manipulating spirits in the body. So, and then there's also a laying on of hands, uh, where a spirit is transferred from uh, basically a um, you know a leader in the yoga community through touch and consent of the person transfers a spirit to them. So. At the, at the entry point, the gateway point, it doesn't seem like there's any problems, but the deeper you get into it, the darker it gets. My guest is Adam Bly, an exorcism expert and demonologist, author of The Exorcism Files, published by Sophia Institute Press. I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. What's the worst case of demonic possession that you've experienced? Hmm worst case there was a case it's um it was going on for 10 years before i got involved and um it was it was physically really rough um and i've seen other cases like this where you know obviously the person's consenting before the prayer you know and wanting to be restrained if they attack other people or try to hurt themselves it's not that anybody's um abusing anybody but when while they're attacking other people, five men not being able to keep them under control or safe, um, have seen things them gesture towards something on the wall and have it rip out of the wall and fly towards them and then grab it out of the air. Um, there was a woman, this this case, there was a man bigger than me, um, 
stockier than me, not just overweight, just physically big. That was one of the people trying to gently restrain them with one arm, threw them across the room like they were a rag doll, um, just completely dominated them. So uh, I've seen unbelievable strength and preternatural powers. That that was probably the worst case, and that that came out of um, satanic ritual abuse. So pervasive, horrible abuse from an early age, uh, for many many years. And and I know some people think satanic ritual abuse doesn't exist. It's nowhere near as prevalent as a satanic panic in the '90s made it out to be. But it is out there. There are these groups out there. They're not as everywhere as people thought for a couple decades there, but they do exist, unfortunately. And and what exactly do these groups engage in? Oh, uh, explicit devil worship. This is not like the, I bought a book at the mall, Wicca person. These people know they're worshiping demons. They want favors from the demons. They want demons to give them money, power, women, physical strength, abilities to to excel in the world. They think they're going to get all these benefits from these creatures. But what they end up getting is used and abused and discarded when they're of no long, no more use. Um, and in that process, they, they they horribly abuse other human beings at the command of these creatures. And and some of those are the people that we see coming out of that looking for help later. And you say horribly abused physically and emotionally? Yeah, for sure. Wow. And is this prevalent, Adam? In our no. society today, it's I know any kind of numbers for America, Western world. No, there, nobody has exact numbers. Um, we do know that there are real cults that started. Uh, a number of them started in the late '60s, and and there's a historical reason for that. Um, you know, Gerald Gardner, he was an English guy. He's the one that came up with the term Wicca or Wiccan. Uh, he's the British guy who who popularized witchcraft back in the 60s. He kind of brought it back into the world. Uh, people thought it was just a myth out of the Bible or, or the, the, the Salem witch trials or something. And he basically repopularized it. And that led to a bunch of movies in Hollywood, which led to the interest in the 70s on witchcraft. So there are some cults that arose all around that same time, including LeVay's Church of Satanism in California. There are other cults like that. Uh, the church, the Temple of Set spun off from them, but then there's other cults that started in other parts of the United States, along with that same cultural movement that have survived. They're not as well known, but they're out there and they they do real criminal activity. Um, so I wouldn't say they're they're big numbers. Um, these are these are fringe groups, you know, that rely on dispossessed and um, in the sense of culturally dispossessed, like uh, people that are down and out and suffering and, and think life has nothing good for them, um, would find perhaps the the promise of security um, and power to be attractive. And and so those are the people they go after. Um, so they are out there. They're, I, I wouldn't say they're prevalent, mm -hmm. but one criminal, as, as you mentioned, the shootings, you know, one criminal can do a lot of damage. It's not like, well, there's not many of these people out there, so we don't need to worry about it. You know, one maniac can can do a lot of harm. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Uh, but, I mean, is it in the hundreds in America, some of these groups? Has to be. Mm. Yeah, because, um, yeah, uh, a number of them are, are, you know, they cover quite an area.
in terms of you know a few states where they have members in in multiple cities yeah they're spread out um yeah and not in every state but in various states yeah you, i'm sure you would find some people that would say they're satanist in every state but most of them are what you would call philosophical satanists where, yeah. the, where they're more just like i'm interested in these ideas and i've read a couple books versus somebody who's explicitly worshiping the devil and is honest about that and and is doing horrible things in that process that's what i'm talking about there yeah yeah sort of like cultural satanist if you will in a sense uh, what do you make out of these luciferian statues that have been the um, object of um, controversy uh, in recent years. These groups putting up statues of Lucifer in very public places. Right. Well, I mean, and, and I've been trying to think about this, John. So the issue seems to be that uh, the protections for religion that's provided for in our in our society here in the United States. Um, the idea is is that those have to be universal, that we don't judge which religion you can be in the United States. And that's true. You have freedom of religion. It's a, it's a core human right. Mm -hmm. Nobody can tell you how to worship God. The confusing thing about all that is the very definition of the word religion, if you look it up, is it, and it depends on you know where you look it up, how you get the exact nuances of it. But the, the bottom line of what religion means is it's the process by which you give honor to the supernatural, honor to a creator, honor to uh, you know a spiritual force, an unseen something that you're trying to have a relationship with. So the Christian would say, I'm trying to have a relationship with Jesus. I'm trying to give honor to God in the sense of Jesus and the, and the Father and the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, uh, the, the Hindus would say they're trying to give honor to these different aspects of God that they see as these deities, et cetera, et cetera. And so the confusing thing about the group that's put up those statues is they repeatedly claim that they don't worship the devil nor believe in any spiritual forces, yet they want the legal protection of a religion to put their stuff up, which is an obvious contradiction to the claim that they don't believe in any spiritual forces, that they're atheists. They're essentially saying they're secular humanists that don't believe in, in anything spiritual, yet they want the protection of a religion which by its definition acknowledges the spiritual. Yeah, it's confusing. Um, I hope I can frame this correctly because I'm interested in getting your take. Um, we've read and heard of reports over the years of um, devil worship, cannibalism, human sacrifice. We don't know if there, some of these reports have been exaggerated, but there, I know there was one famous case on 60 Minutes Australia. It's going to be going back at 10 years or so. And um, it created a lot of waves um, on that topic of cannibalism, devil worship, the demonic and so on. So I mentioned that to put it side by side uh, with what happens each day at mass, the blood, the holy spiritual blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. You know, both of us are Catholic, and of course, a lot of Catholics struggle with that. But that's the teaching of the Catholic Church, the Magisterium, the blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, I suppose what I'm really trying to ask you is, can we draw anything from th those two striking images? One is is dark. The other is is pure and illuminates us. So, do you think Christ had something 
planned in what he was trying to do and perpetuate on this planet? Oh, for sure. Um, one thing that I, it's taken me years to really realize this, but as I, as I hopefully mature a little bit and as I grow a little bit older and, and I, I watch the world a little more placidly from my perspective, I've realized more and more, John, that so many of these things, they are just a distorted version of what God does. And I've realized through the work, you know, going to the exorcisms and talking with these people, it's so clear to me that the devil and the demons are not creative creatures. They only look at what God does and try to make a mockery of that. And so when you when you talk about cannibalism and, and human sacrifice and this type of thing, from my perspective, I see it as just another example of the devil trying to insult God and thumb his nose at God by doing a distorted version of a sacrifice, a distorted version of communion. And and to get more to directly to your question, I think a big part of what Jesus was doing was bringing to a close the age that the Jews had lived in and participated in, and that was of sacrifice to God. You know, there was physical sacrifice of animals of various types in the temple to God and blood sacrifices to Yahweh uh, for various reasons in the temple. And the lamb uh, is a reference to there were sacrificial lambs, but Jesus is the final sacrifice, and he is the complete sacrifice that outweighs all of our sins. So the sacrifices in the temple used to be done in atonement for sin, primarily of different types. Jesus said, I'm bringing that age to a close. God is now going to make the perfect sacrifice on your behalf and he is also going to himself give himself as a perfect sacrifice so that you no longer need to do these things. And so at least that's, you know, my take. I don't claim to be a great theologian, but that's just my reflection on it. So when the devil encourages people to do these these horrible acts, he's just continuing to try to get us to look at a distorted version of the beautiful thing that God has done for us. He's trying to dis distract us from that free gift of Christ's sacrifice that atones for our sins and get us to stare at his mockery of it. Do you think the um, devil uh, demons have infiltrated the Catholic Church? Because you do write in your book, The Exorcism Files, about that kind of attack on priestly vocations. Yeah, I mean, priests are the number one danger for the demonic. So every seminarian goes through tremendous spiritual trials, temptations, discouragement, temptations to quit, to not go through with it, not become a priest, because priests are enemy number one. They're the biggest threat to the demonic. Has Have they infiltrated the church? Not in the dramatic, sensational sense, in the sense that the church is composed of human beings, some of which are, you know, affected by the demonic. If and and don't take that dramatically. We're all tempted. Mm -hmm. Every one of us is tempted by the demonic. So in that sense, everybody is infiltrated. But the important thing to remember about the church is that Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against her and that the Holy Spirit would guide her. And so no matter how bad it gets, and it's been bad before, it's been worse than it is now in terms of drama, con internal conflict, you know, problems. The church has weathered those things before. 
the important thing, though, is that God's not going to abandon his church. He's It's never going to fall. Um, so, yes, infiltrated in the sense that there's human beings, some of which are affected maybe a little more than temptation, just because there's hundreds of thousands of people in the church, you know, from the priests up around the world. So, some of them are troubled, sure. But a lot of us are troubled out here too, you know, the lay people. So, um, yeah, I hope that I hope that answers. You write about also in exorcism files. We didn't have time to talk about it last time that you um, have experienced uh, miracles, or you have investigated miracles. Could you tell mm -hmm. us about that? You know, when so for context, the church does not often investigate miracles unless. Um, it's the cause for a saint is up. So let's say let's say before they declared Padre Pio a saint, he's a very famous saint in in the in the Catholic Church. Before they would declare him a saint, they would investigate him thoroughly, and they would require two separate miracles that happened directly in response to somebody asking for his prayers. Of course, Catholics don't pray to saints. We don't worship saints. What we do is we ask them to pray for us. Because we assume that they're there with God and they have God's ear in that sense, that they're directly in God's presence. And we say, hey, while you're up there, would you ask the boss for this for me? <laughs> and and that's essentially what when we, you know, we pray to saints, we're just asking them to, you know, ask the boss for a favor. Well, those miracles of healings that they require before they'll consider making somebody a saint, those are investigated incredibly thoroughly, you know, to be absolutely sure that they're instantaneous, they're complete, that they can't be explained by doctors, and the person doesn't slip back into whatever damaged state they were in. So like a, a healing of cancer, they're stage four, they're terminal, there's tumors all through their body, it's all been verified by MRI, they pray to this saint, the person wakes up the next morning, they feel fine, they can't find the tumors, and the cancer never comes back. That's how radical the healing needs to be for them to consider it a miracle. Now, there are cases, rare cases, where somebody may claim, for instance, that they're seeing Mary and receiving messages from Mary, and they might say, and she did this sign to prove that this is all real. So, an example of that is Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah. You know, uh, he went to the bishop and said, Mary showed up on the hill and she told me to tell you this. She wants a church over there. And the bishop says, get away from me. And he goes back to Mary and says, bishop doesn't believe me. I'm just, you know, a peasant farmer. You got to do something. Otherwise, they're not going to listen. And then the Tilma miracle happens as a sign in order to, for heaven to prove that something is legitimately from heaven. Okay. So there's those very rare instances where the church may investigate such claims because the church, if it's validly from heaven, would want to at least hear what the message is. You know, these are private revelations. We're not required to believe them. We're not required to rely on them or act on them. But the church is interested in those because heaven does speak sometimes through mystics and, and you know, people that are uh, later declared saints. Now, in addition to that, there are privately sometimes people submit claims to a diocese, to a bishop, and say, well, I think this is, you know, uh, this is something miraculous. And then a bishop may ask one of his employees to go investigate that. And those are the kind of things that I've been involved in. So, you know, one of those was a, was a purported stigmata case where the person thought they had the stigmata. They, they took some pictures of it. They sent those pictures in. 
uh, with a description of the phenomenon, you know, and I looked into that, um, you know, and, and there's other kind of lesser miracles, um, that I've been around, like the scent of flowers filling a space instantaneously that everybody can smell. And then, you know, after a certain period of time, instantly it's gone and you find no trace of it. Um, there are purported healings, some of which I've looked into not fully in depth, like a saint investigation, but there are purported healings. I have priest friends that have prayed with people, you know, situations that were pretty radical in the sense that they only had one kidney. Pers priests prayed with them, not about their kidneys, but about their failing health. They were on their on death's door, you know, in the hospital. And not only did they recover, but they seemed to have two kidneys when they did a body scan afterwards. God, the boss is good to know. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, the, these kind of things, sometimes um, you're asked to look into in, in the sense of checking with the doctor and making sure that's actually what, you know, the doctor's claiming. Um, yeah. I know somebody who received a wound um, or a scar kind of mystically, it just appeared. And then on a body scan, they saw scar tissue as if they had been harmed earlier in their life wow. because it was an old scar. Um, this was related to a bigger phenomenon. So, yeah, there, there's a bunch of those. And then, um, yeah, and then I've seen some beautiful things happen connected with uh, relics, first-class relics of saints and having an impact on people and healings. Uh, but those are, you know, again we don't like present those as miracles to the world to be scrutinized and, and post here's the medical reports because yeah. the church isn't in like the church isn't beholden to anybody to, to prove these things. Um, it's more like internal investigations. Yeah. And then there are Eucharistic miracles. Yes. Yeah. And the Eucharistic ones are really interesting. So, and really in a sense, they're the most important miracles in, in the, in the Catholic world. And that is when the, when the consecrated host and or wine, um, becomes human tissue, specifically cardiac tissue, heart tissue. Um, and and one of the one of the striking examples of that actually happened uh, you know, in our in in our age, you know, very recently. And so they were able to take the samples to uh, a professor of, of cardiac medicine. Uh, without telling them what they were looking at and just ask them, what is this? Um, and I I have a good bit of the details of that in, in a previous book that I did, but um, people can find accounts of, of various Eucharistic miracles where it's modern situation where you can apply technology to it. Um, interestingly, it always seems to be the same blood type. It seems to be cardiac tissue. Um, and yeah, it's it's very striking. And those often are allowed to be seen by the world you know those the data behind those are usually presented to the world because it's seen as a sign for the world not just for the believers in the church though it does help them because many people don't believe in the eucharist but it's seen as as a sign just for the whole world as an encouragement for people um just going to quickly divert um back in the 1980s um in ireland just after i had left or around that period i grew up in Ireland, um, there was an, a, a very interesting phenomena taking place, and it was the subject of awe and some ridicule, but nobody proved or disproved, although some people thought the seers were, were, losing, were losing their minds or their grip on themselves. But it was the phenomena of moving Marian statues throughout the island, throughout Ireland. 
And um, I don't know if you ever came across that, Adam, but Mm. it was widely reported at the time, and then it just disappeared. But people would gather in the evening and pray at the Marian shrines, and they would, many of them would report seeing the, the statue moving. The phenomena eventually disappeared. But um, some years later, I believe it was on one of the anniversary dates, some television company interviewed some of the um, people who claimed they saw the statues moving, and they recounted their details in very precise details and and, and stood by their testimony. Yes, the statue moved. It was Mm. awe-inspiring. It was beautiful. I was uplifted. I was in some kind of a extraterrestrial zone or whatever we don't know what the truth Mm -hmm. was i don't believe there was ever any church investigation but it was fascinating yeah you know there was a case of um what seemed to be mary appearing on the top of a coptic church over in egypt uh i believe this was in the 70s and it went on for and it's been a while since i read the story but it, it went on for more than a month and it was it was a nightly occurrence and and the government that was pretty opposed to to the coptic Christian people um, even went so far as to cut all the power in that whole region of the city because thinking it was a projector or some type of special effect being used. Um, And hundreds of thousands of people gathered night after night to watch this figure of Mary walking around on the church roof. Um, And that was well documented, but a lot of the footage of it, I mean, you can still see the footage. You can find it on YouTube. It's, I believe, Zytoon was the the city. Um, But that one was interesting in the sense that you know, the footage still survives. Well, we're almost at a time, um, Adam. Um, what's your caseload like at the moment? Are you kept busy? Yeah, yeah, we do. Um, we do sessions every Friday. So currently we're working with four people. And um, I have many other cases that are lesser that aren't full possession, you know, that I kind of farm out to our priests and, and give them advice and help those people too. But you don't, you're not an exorcist, so to be very no. clear about this, correct? What's your role in all of this? I'm I'm a lay person, so I cannot do solemn exorcisms. That's only a priest with permission from the bishop. I'm essentially a coach and a teacher. So mm-hmm. I, I, I help um, help train new exorcists that are coming up. We have a number that visit us every Friday from neighboring dioceses, and we, we help teach them. I also teach at conferences, um, clergy days sometimes, um, the Pope Leo XIII Institute, and I'm traveling to South America and the Far East this year uh, to train in various places. Well, always great having you as my guest. I learn so much and you give me lots to think about, so much so that I have to have you back again to ask follow-up questions. And we'll do that, Adam. And in okay. the meantime, take care. You too, John. God bless you. You are listening to Dig Life Deep with John Aiden Byrne. You can reach the host in the U.S. at 973-529-4699. That's 973 973- 529-4699-973-529-4699. Email burndesk at gmail.com. That's burndesk, B-Y-R-N-E, desk at gmail.com. Burndesk at gmail.com. Subscribe for free.